life shouldn't feel like a drag. And you shouldn't have to sacrifice your soul for a job you love. Determined to rethink the future of work. She's out of her depth on purpose. With fresh ideas, interviews, and stories from her life on the road. Meet Europe's newest digital nomad, Blair Palmer. Hello and welcome to episode 88 of A Brilliant Gamble. I hope you are really well. I'm still in England. Yay, still in England. We are here, as I've mentioned before, taking care of a not terribly well relative and um, just kind of enjoying being back on home territory. So much so, in fact, that we've started very light house hunting. We're not in a massive rush. We're still traveling, certainly for the rest of this year. Um, But we have started looking for something new, which is really, really fun and really, really scary at the same time. I'm sure I'll talk about it in a future show. It's not what today's show is all about. But um, yeah, that's what's happening here. However, I have something much more interesting to share with you, which is today's interview. Music has always been a really big part of my life. I was in my first band when I was a teenager. I was in a band at university, after university, and then I took a break for about 10 years from my mid-20s to mid-30s. I was really busy with work and everything, and then went back uh, into music, joined another band in my mid-30s. And uh, I remember when I was in my final year at university, we were approached, my band was approached by a record label, and we freaked. Each member of the band took the more secure route of getting a job, or in my case, going off to get professional training as a journalist, and the band broke up. And I do sometimes wonder what would have happened if we'd have taken the risk. What if we had chosen to make music our job? Well, on today's show, I'm talking to the fantastic, the Mercury-nominated Sweet Billy Pilgrim, a.k.a. Jana Carpenter and Tim Elsenberg. I'm fascinated by people who've made creativity such a central part of their life, whether or not they combine that with a proper job, in inverted commas. As we each look for the right blend of work and home and self, more and more of us realise that it's the creativity that's been pushed aside. And when we try to reincorporate it, we realise, speaking for myself certainly, that it can be hard to justify investing time in something that doesn't make money, that we've lost some kind of strength in our creative muscles because we've neglected our creativity for so long, and that we can't believe we survived so long without a creative outlet. In this interview with the band, we talk about connecting with audiences, storytelling, the realities of combining a job with your creative interests, and the whole challenge of balancing and blending the different parts of your life when it's tempting to just forget about it and keep life simple. At the end of the interview, you can listen to the band's fantastic Asking for a Friend, their new song. Don't forget to check them out if you haven't already. And I'm going to stop talking about it now, other than to say you're in for a real treat. Let's go to the interview. Hi, guys. Great to see you. How are you? Hello. Very very well. Thank you, Blair. Thank you for having us on. Good. This is one of the first times in a long time that I've interviewed someone who's in the same country as me at the same time as me. Yeah. Same time zone. It's so easy. That immediately makes us feel less glamorous. <laughs> no. 
you know, because we are in very glamorous UK, which is very international. Very cool. Yeah, very international. And we've had very international weather. Yeah. We have. It's been all over the place. <laughs> so there are so many things that I want to talk to you about, but I think the, the place to kick off is, is music, obviously, and how music became such a big part of both of your lives. Did, at what point did you know that, that music was going to play this such huge role in your life? Uh, for me, um, it's all I've ever wanted to do. Kind of came from a musical household. Uh, so mum, my mum's dad, my granddad. Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> that's what we call those. Yeah, um, uh, he was the pianist in the RAF band during the war. Um, so he used to do the broadcasts with Vera Lynn, and um, you know he played in clubs every evening. And so I learned the piano, and then gave up on that, and then I learned violin, and gave up on that. Did the flute for a bit, definitely gave that up, uh, and and then eventually picked up a guitar. And well, it was bass guitar first. And then realised I couldn't write songs on that very well. And uh, uh, I think it was my my cousin, my Dutch cousin. He um, uh, he formed a band. I ended up in that band. And ever since then, that was when I was 11 or 12. That's just been kind of the dream. Just, you know, looking at guitars in magazines and getting excited about that. And, and then, yeah, just basically being in those bands where it was, you know, the person who played Should I Stay or Should I Go the Least Badly um, at the School Battle of the Bands. That was me. So pretty much the cliche. But, but I guess the thing is that, that if you carry on doing it kind of beyond the age of probably 25, you're probably going to be doing it forever. You know, even if you've got a day job, it's um, it's sort of, it's in your bones then. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, and then I recently, well, I say recently, in the last four or five years, became a, a lecturer um, at a university that teaches songwriting. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of had to look at what I did uh, a bit more objectively in order to be able to explain it to other people. Um, and kind of in doing that, um, uh, sort of started to understand my process a bit and started to understand that within that process are habits and that within those habits are bad habits. You know, um, uh, there are, you know, down to certain shapes that your hand falls into when you pick up a guitar and you say so you tend to write around certain chords and, and, you know, finding ways out of those habits to try new things. So if I'm teaching a class about, you know, um, um, writing uh, hip hop lyrics, um, I really should have a go at that before I try and explain why I love it so much. So it's kind of led me in all sorts of new directions, which is sort of fed into what we do. Um, so yeah, so for me, it's just been there all the time. Um, it's just been, been learning to be less, I guess, instinctive and more uh, kind of considered and more... You know, um, uh, I've always been someone who works with, um, you know, kind of uh, going through all the options I can possibly think of for something mm -hmm. before settling on the right thing. Um, and yeah, so it's kind of expanding on that idea. You know, the first idea isn't always the best one, despite what Neil Young would have us believe. Not a great one for the idea of kind of, you know, staring out of a window, inspiration, you know, that kind of, I like the idea of it being work and I like the idea of that kind of, it was Nick Cave who said, you know, basically, if you don't turn up at your office at nine o'clock in the morning and, you know, and do some work, it's all pointless. You, just, <laughs> you know, kind of the opposite of inspiration. Uh, and I like the idea of it being a job. Yeah. So, That's the, I didn't know that Nick Cave was, you, you, you don't associate him with that kind of 
I guess that work ethic, that kind of systematic sit down in front, in your case, sit down with the guitar in your hand or the manuscript paper in front of you. And it's a job. I think a lot of people don't understand that. And, 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 And maybe some creatives don't work in that way, but so many seem to in more systemic process way. There is, yeah, it's, it's like, definitely there are times when your mind isn't as open and isn't working as well in a kind of creative sense, but there's still stuff to do. There's always stuff to do. And, and, and when, I, when, we're, when I'm talking to new songwriters, so people on the course who are learning about this stuff, uh, it's a case of, well, you, you don't sit there and wait for it to happen because there's a million other things you could be doing. Um, and uh, uh, it's all about um, the honing of material. So even if you've already got the idea it's really easy to get excited about the new idea the difficult part is then having the discipline to take all of the stuff you've chucked at a wall and try and form it into something you don't swear by the way yes yeah, swear away oh, <laughs> yeah so you can throw the shit at the wall but it's just forming it into something that kind of you know the difficult bit is the molding the shit. yeah molding the shit <laughs> literally getting your hands dirty <laughs> see we went there yeah yeah okay <laughs> But that's the shit metaphor done with. Yeah. Yeah. The shit of all. And what about you? Was it the same story for you in terms of right, starting right from early school days? Well, I mean, yes, yes and no. I mean, I, I also kind of come from a musical-ish background. Uh, my dad was uh, as a singer, and uh, but he was he was in the military, so he he's frustrated artist. So wherever we were stationed, he would either join the the theatre club or start one himself so um so I grew up around this sort of misfit creative end of the military if that's a thing um and um but uh so when I decided to go I, I wanted to go to drum school I wanted to be an actor and um and when I decided to go my parents were just thrilled that I found a thing that I loved doing so um uh, but then I came to music late um and I always I liked the idea of performing music and, and, and writing, but I, I guess I, it was partly a confidence thing. And it wasn't until I kind of got my head around the idea of, of, of performing music being another, in a way, another way to tell a story, be a character, that I was able to have the confidence to be able to do it. Because um, the idea of being in front of a group of people as me, performing as me, was entirely alien. Whereas being somebody else was fine, <laughs> if that makes sense. So, uh, so I came to it quite late and it's been a, a a slow pros, like in my 30s. Um, yeah, but it's been really interesting how that's worked with the band because John are coming to it from that point of view. Uh, it basically was my motivation. Um, it means, you know, A, I have to, ex- you know, lyrically speaking, we have to make a decision between us what, what that motivation is, where the story comes from, mm-hmm. um, who John is in the story. Um, but it meant I had to think like that yeah. as well, which was something as a performer I never did. It was just about getting the notes right. So we've, so I've learned loads as a performer and as a storyteller from, from, from Jana's background, the kind of the balance of it has been brilliant. When I used to, when I, cause when I, I was, a, I was in the lucky position to be, I was a fan of the band before I was in the band. And I remember going to see them uh, early, you know, like say, I guess about 10 years ago. Um, and I was sort of struck by, um, I'd listened to this music that I thought was amazing and beautiful and then going to see them and I was like, why are they looking at their feet? <laughs> why aren't they telling me the story? And, uh, and so as an audience member, I was like, I'm almost wanting to jump up, jump up and down and go, tell it to me, tell it to me. And so when I then um, was lucky enough to be part of it, 
I still kind of had my f my foot in both camps, you know, of like, what's it like to be inside of the stories and what's it like, and it's still kind of imagining how it appears to the people receiving the story, mm. you know? And so that's been kind of an interesting um, uh, thing. And I, I've been kind of protective of that position, but now it, we both, we kind of just, we've just evolved to having those conversations now. Mm. And those conversations have become songs as well, which is a weird sort of meta, <laughs> yeah, the way it works now is, you know, we'll come up maybe with a title or an idea or a concept or something, um, and then we'll go and have coffee and smoke fags. <laughs> and, um, and I'll sort of say, there's this thing, I, I kind of think I want to say, how could I say, it? what could this title mean? Mm -hmm. And then, and then John, I'll just basically just leave her to go and improv her way through. <laughs> I'm an over-interpreter and I, and I have lots of gest hand gestures, so... Yeah. Um, it's, it's also how she teaches me lyrics. Because <laughs> I can't remember my own lyrics. So Joanna does... She puts her hand in a particular place, this is what... Yeah. Oh, no, she literally announced I literally act them out if he's forgetting. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, there's, I, I refer to wolves quite a lot on the new album. So, so like, her. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes That's I get confused. Lions, you yeah. know. Yeah. I mean, a lot of um, a lot of creative jobs or, or creative ways of expression are quite solitary. Um, a band is different. Mm. A band is so much about partnership and relationship. It's really interesting to hear the two of you talk about how you work together, but also Tim, in your case, how you've how it's transformed the way that you work because the band has had many different um, sort of makeups to it, and this is its latest. Mm. And I'm sure, you know, long lasting uh, format, but it, but it's, it's changed, hasn't it, over the years? And so are you saying that your, how you, where the creativity comes from and how the creativity expresses itself is influenced as much by the other people in the band and their DNA as it is from just coming from you within you? No, I think it's, it's actually, it's pretty specific to Jana. Um, because, <laughs> cool. yeah. Um, <laughs> just be, just because uh, when the, when the band started, it was just me and a laptop, um, and then I brought in basically two of my oldest friends. They're actually um, the best friends of my my late brother, um, and um, kind of when my brother died, it was really unexpected. And um, uh, as part of a healing thing, you know, myself, Alistair the drummer, uh, and Anthony the bass player, we were kind of in bands together as a kind of distraction, as a way to kind of get through it. Um, and we did like, you know, two years of shitty pub gigs playing cover versions and we've done, you know, every, everything. We were Toya's backing band for a bizarre gig, um, Ronnie Scott's in front of an exclusively gay audience and Robert Fripp, her husband. So that was weird. Um, uh, we've done, we played for a guy called Martin Greck years ago, who was like one of the last of kind of the massive signings, you know, for lots and lots of money. And we did like three months of touring with him and basically all of the musical stuff that we've done, we've done together. Um, so, but it was always me who provided the, the writing. I basically told them what to do and then they, obviously their personalities would, would come out in what we did. Um, uh, and then, yeah, as we've been talking about, when Jana, Jana joined the band, um, I, it took me a while, quite a long while, um, to realise what the advantage of that was and why things felt different, um, particularly with the way that we performed them live. Um, and now we're in a position where we're, um, we're, we're doing these house concerts to pay for the last album and we're, we're actually in people's living rooms, standing in front of them, standing in front, usually in front of the telly, 
um, that they would normally be watching at that time <laughs> of the evening. And you can kind of see in their faces, uh, uh, there's a moment of, oh, what have we got ourselves into? This is really awkward. And we think also, we often sort of say that out loud, of like, and like, you know, it's the elephant in the room. So we'll say, we understand this is weird. It probably feels weird for you. It feels weird for us too. Yeah. And, but that's cool because all, inevitably, well, every single time yeah. you go from that slightly awkward, you're in a living room or experiencing this thing to by the end of it, it becomes this amazing, um, uh, where everyone in the room is connected. You know, we've all shared a thing that's happened once yeah. and, uh, and it's, it's entirely unique and it ends up being really moving. Always, they always are moving in some way and playful as well. well. The, because the light, the lights are on, the lights are literally on. I'm not even being metaphorical. <laughs> so like, look, Normally, normally at a gig, you know, we're staring out into kind of blackness, really. We know there are people there, but we can't really establish a connection with anything but maybe the first two rows. Yeah. So this gives us an opportunity to actually look everybody in the eye. And, you know, I guess with that comes a certain amount of adaptation on our part, you know, because it's quite a thing. Um, but um, it's becoming easier. And we're suddenly realising that this is just such a lovely way to connect. And what's interesting is into going back to that storytelling thing, what I find interesting is how you are looking at how there's a lot of noise that goes on in your head when you're performing. And sometimes you want to block it out. But actually, some, in the house case, I'm finding that noise really um, quite enriching because you're, I'm looking at people and going, I'm wondering how they're experiencing this moment. You know, each individual person, if I make eye contact with someone, we're both aware that, you know, you don't normally hold eye contact with people for very long, and that's kind of weird. Um, but so you give signals to them that it's okay, and they give it back. And you're having that with all these people individually. And so what that creates is this, um, uh, this a weird unity that doesn't exist in, in most other, uh, you know, well, traditional performance kind of situations so you're so that that sort of busyness that's going on in your head while you're telling a story and having this moment with the other you know with Tim and I are having this moment performing something is also backed up by this um by considering how each person is experiencing it and then kind of in in my head a little effort to to do my best at making that that person have the best time they can have um, and wh whether that, I don't mean, <laughs> I don't mean that in a sort of show tunes kind of way. I mean that just in terms of get out of this something that they, you know, they take away something from this that's unusual or whatever, for whatever reason, you know, yeah. in, enriching. Maybe. So to kind of, sorry, and, and uh, we've gone miles off track. <laughs> but, um, uh, so yeah, with, with Alan Bish, um, so the, the drummer and bass player, uh, I mean, it was really, really undramatic. Basically what happened was we, don't, we did this for like 10 years and um, to, to basically, not, not diminishing returns, but um, it was getting harder and harder to justify lugging a drum kit and a bass amp, you know, down three flights of stairs into some dingy cellar to do a gig in front of 50 or 60 people. Uh, and the fact that, you know, every gig cost us more than we were getting paid. Uh, and I think they just kind of went, you know what, I, we just either need a break or to do something else. So Al has taken his family off around America for two years in a, in a, in a big, um, what are they called? RV. In an RV. Um, and, and Bish is, um, he's he got married stepdad. and he's, um, he's a kind of stepdad. So, so like it's, they're just trying, they're doing different things. They're filling their life with different things. And it might be temporary and it might all come back together. But in the meantime, you know, that's left the two of us to sort of shape 
what we do specifically based on what we've observed in these these house gigs and i think it's that thing of that how um you know limitations being a gift sometimes when you kind of go well this is what it is and uh you know rather than seeing that as a loss seeing it as a gain and then what you can um make out of that and why at this point in time this is a good way this is a good thing to be doing and why yeah. this is important and it's also i mean you know to be absolutely honest as we talk about this stuff it's not always easy to keep that up mm-hmm. you know it's it can be quite uh bleak yeah you know especially when you're trying to, to get the balance between your music and your life and money and all those different things um you know it's it's not always uh easy to see the positives it's quite easy to get sucked into you know uh i don't have time for this i don't have time to give it i don't have time to make this as good as it can be mm-hmm. which is my endless frustration yeah and is that easier at the moment because there's there's the two of you there's less complexity you can be more adaptive mm-hmm. in some ways yeah but in some ways not because you know the writing you know just trying to find the time for the two of us to get together mm-hmm. the two of us to rehearse the, to, you know um uh in terms of writing putting things it's yeah <laughs> It's a struggle, but we always, but we, but you know, we wouldn't still be doing if it doing it if it didn't have a hook of, um, or it wasn't rooted in uh, trust and uh, and and feeling fulfilled for the moments that we get to to do it, you know, um, and it goes a long way. Yeah. Doesn't it? Doesn't cover everything, but it goes a long way. You know, it, it's you, you kind of it's very easy, especially with the the, the way the world works, to to gauge success on you know you know how much you've sold and all that stuff but but like i got an email from um so a really old friend uh who i haven't really seen for maybe 10 years he's moved to canada and and i and he just he wrote me this really short um message just basically how i've been struggling with stuff life's really hard at the moment but your song your new song spoke to me and that's and and it made me feel better for a minute and and so like even if one person has that see that made me that's making me cry just hearing that (laughs) worth it (laughs) i wanted to ask you about that because you know you have you know you've been nominated for a mercury prize and you you've had a lot of accolades over the years and so all, all the wonderful reviews and all that kind of stuff but i wonder if um you know i'm reviewing what success means to me um, and that's opening up a lot of opportunities to, to live in a different way. Um, and I'm wondering if you re- have been reassessing, what, just as, as you've said, what, is, what, what are going to be our measures of success? Because it, maybe it isn't always going to be external recognition or a lot of record sales. I mean, obviously, that's great when that happens. Well, I say obviously, is that great when it happens? And does it feel the way that, it's, that you think it's going to feel? I don't know. I think for me, uh, if I could just not worry about money, I know it's cliche and I know everybody feels the same way, but you know, not be rich, just not every month gets to the end of the month and goes, how, how are we going to do it this month then? You know, um, I'm really, really tired of that. Uh, but sort of beyond that, no, I mean, it's, it's, we have to go back to the very roots of what we do, which is the, the telling of stories, you know, if we get to do that in front of people who want us to tell the stories and at the end of that experience feel slightly different, because that's kind of what I gauge it on. You know, if I listen to a piece of music 
and I feel a bit different afterwards. And if I watch a film and I feel a bit different afterwards or I have a conversation with someone new um, and I feel a bit different afterwards, that's, that's when I know it's been meaningful and, mm-hmm. and worthy and all of those things. So, but, but when you're opening a tin of baked beans for your whole family, you're kind of like, it can be as worthy as you like. <laughs> this is bullshit. Um, and, you know, oscillating, vacillating, oscillating, well, whatever, one of those two. <laughs> something kind to of, do with spinning. Yeah, something to do with that. Or back and forth. Yeah. And is that why, because you, you, you both uh, work and you, you do various things to keep, um, keep roofs over your heads. I wonder if, again, this is all down to the definition of success. You know, some people might say, oh, well, success is I can make a full-time living out of doing the thing that I love. Mm. Someone else might say, actually, success is finding a way to do what I love and keep a roof over my head at the same time, which is a, a subtle difference. But it's just, a, you know, how will I get my basic needs met? And then how will I then get my more advanced needs, my need to express, my need to tell stories, to, to entertain, to connect, met? And those might be met by different places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, I think another thing is that you can reach a point uh, as a as a creative, where you think, okay, I'm I'm good at this now, um, uh, and I I put the work in, and uh, why is it not my job? Why is this not my job? I have this quite quite often. It's uh, everything I do is kind of music related, and you know that's what I have to remind myself is that yes, I do get to teach, so I get to kind of share it with other people. So it kind of feels like putting something back a bit. Um, and and then there's interesting kind of sidelines off into music for other things um, but fundamentally what I'd love to do is this full time you know when I when I did it for two years I would I got a publishing deal and it kind of goes as long as I lived on baked potatoes um, <laughs> it, I could basically there was two years of my life when I could just do that when I could just write and I could just record and I you know I'd love to be able to tell you that I kind of lost my way and got distracted and it was horrible and developed a terrible drug habit yeah developed a terrible you know <laughs> but I, I was really good and I loved it and I really loved it and I, I kind of you know having it's almost worse having had a taste of it to not be able to do that so yeah so I, I can't lie it's you know there there is there is there are moments of kind of desperation but also really wonderful kind of uplifting you know, of course, what else am I going to do? And like, we've had those where we've gone, do you know what? I can't do it anymore. And then, and then I think, well, am I going to write a song? Another song? Yes, I am. And it's, am I going to record that song? I probably am going to record that song. <laughs> and if I'm going to record that song, it's kind of pointless to do that without actually putting it out into the world and letting it do a thing. Um, so you just end up back where you were. So it just comes and hooks you again. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I think about the people who um, who have let their creativity go, that who who do have the guitar sitting in the side of the room gathering dust, and they never pick it up, or who used to be in a band, you know, twenty years ago. I mean, you said if you if if you are still doing it from twenty five, when you're twenty five, you probably never stop. The people that stopped at twenty five. And it doesn't have to be music. It could be, I meet people who, who stopped painting, who stopped um, singing, who, who stopped riding their bike, you know, at a certain point in their life. And, and everything just became about roof over our head, climb the corporate ladder. Um, and I, I wonder what's lost then in terms of, you know, you, you, the story that you have to tell about your life if you, if you let it go and you, you never go back to it. 
Yeah, but one thing I will say though is, is you can go back to it in, in various different ways. And I think that um, we were talking before about reinvention. And I think, um, I think the, the, the boundary between profession and hobby is becoming more and more blurry over in, in the modern world as we, you know, we have more of a, um, a freelance society where people do lots of different things and, and make shifts and changes. I think um, I'm certainly, um, I got to a point where I thought I was done doing the fun stuff and then decided, no, I'm not. And, uh, and so started looking for, for new things, uh, which is now, now I'm doing, <laughs> go back to university. But, um, but I kind of, uh, I think it's kind of, you can, you can, I think if you accept that life is long and that there are, there's a lot of time to fill and do you want to be filling it, not being happy with what you're doing, then, you know, just, just be wasting a lot of that time. You know, I remember I was like, I guess I was probably around 44 ish when I was thinking, um, is this, am I going to, am I just, is it now atrophy from now? Am I going to slow down and, um, and then kind of going, oh my God, what if I live till I'm 90 though? <laughs> you know, so like, while I'm still fit, let's do something else, you know? And so for me, uh, along with um, doing music and uh, improv and teaching improv and raising my daughter and stuff, I was like, I need something else. And so that's why I decided to go to university. And, um, and it's been so energizing. Um, I have no idea how well I'll do, but just the act of doing something new and using my brain in a new way has been massively energizing and going, okay, so if I'm around for another 40 years, that isn't going to be dead time. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's very similar to the way that I was thinking a couple of years ago, that, that idea that life is long. And I imagined myself looking back when I'm, you know, in my 70s or 80s at myself in my 40s and yeah. thinking, I was young then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't feel like it when you're in the middle of it, but yeah. the fact is, I was young then. What and and then I just decided. Well, that's it. That did I just decide in my forties? Well, that's it. Whatever I'm doing now is what I'm going to carry on doing until I can either afford to stop or I can't physically do it anymore. And then I'm going to be, you know, in a home or whatever. Is that is that the is that the trajectory? Or can I can I take brilliant gambles? Can I um, disrupt my life and maybe fail? I mean, we, talk, we, we talked a moment ago about money, but, you know, if I wasn't so attached to having money, mm -hmm. could I make some more interesting decisions? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that now because both of my sons, well, I'm just about to send my eldest son off to university and my younger son is sort of 17, so he's not far off that. So we're kind of looking at, you know, the, the fledglings leaving the nest and, you know, in the next two to three years thinking, you know, why, why are we working just to pay the rent? You know, cause we've got quite a nice place and, you know, obviously we need the room for the boys and I have to have a room from the studio and all the rest of it. But, you know, so I'm starting to look at things like, you know, static caravans you know, <laughs> that you, you, basically pay you know 400 pounds a month um instead of over a thousand pounds a month and and you kind of live in one room and you know and i could <clears> put a little studio in the corner or maybe have a separate building with a studio in with the money that we save or but yeah finding a way to live a life that's uh you know uh m more manageable and so that you can focus on the things that really matter yeah. um 
you know, it's all very well, you know, living in the center of a town and all of that stuff, but it's becoming less and less important. And I look in my house at all the stuff we've got, you know, we have got a big telly and we have got a Blu-ray player and I'm just thinking, I, I don't know if I need that. As long as I'm in, you know, as long as I can take my books with me and I can take my CDs with me, those are the kind of two pre prerequisites and some recording equipment, kind of not bothered about the rest of it. <laughs> so like, you know, if we go and live by the seaside in Hastings or Hunstanton or wherever, we can live there really cheaply because it's basically where, you know, old people go to die. <laughs> um, and, uh, we can live there really cheaply. Uh, I, I can do a minimum. My wife can do kind of a minimum. And we can just, you know, get the stuff done that we want to get done. Um, so, yeah, I don't, yeah I, that's either, either the dreams of a man who thinks he's much younger than he really is. <laughs> or it's... Or it, much older. <laughs> or, I am, or I am an old person who's going somewhere to die. <laughs> One of the two. But, you know, the thing is about that is... Uh, I'm, a, I'm like, well, go for it. I mean, I, I know from our experience over the last six months, we've been traveling around in an RV. I don't know if you know this. We've been traveling around in an RV for six months, me and my daughter, all oh. around. Oh, we sold our house. Um, I'm recording, recording this from my parents' apartment because I actually don't have anywhere to live when I'm in the UK. Oh. Um, and so we've done that for six months. And with, with that idea in mind that, you know, let's just, we don't need any of this. Mm -hmm. I don't need a house. I don't need an au pair. I don't even need a car. Our, our car can be our house. Um, you know, let, and let's just go. And what one, I've discovered lots of things uh, about that. Um, and some very surprising things, which is, for instance, I do like having a house. Um, mm -hmm. And so when we bring this adventure to an end, pretty soon, the house and somewhere permanent will be um, but we'd be high on our priorities. But we didn't know that until we stripped everything away. And so, you know, it might be that you're in your static caravan staring out the, the window at the sea thinking, I am bored as shit. I, like, <laughs> <laughs> I, needed the hustle. I needed the hustle and the grind and I needed the pressure and I, you know, I can't live like this. I'm going to, I'm going to die if I live like this. It might be, but, but that will, that will tell you something that you don't currently know. Yeah. yeah yeah that is interesting that's stripping it away to then kind of assess what it is i found myself for the first time i don't know if i'd ever do this but i found myself googling yesterday um silent retreats um uh, simply because i was thinking they're a great band i love that <laughs> <laughs> i love their early work yeah. <laughs> yeah um but i because i was thinking about that thing about how um we have so much you know and it's a, definitely a challenge that um the, the kids are facing at the moment as they grow up through it. We have st so much stimulation. There's st so many ways in which um, we can avoid being with ourselves and our thoughts. You know, that, that, that time that um, when I was a kid, even, I mean, up through my twenties, I remember just laying on my bed, just thinking about stuff, just daydreaming. And it's not something I do as much as I used to because, uh, because I can be distracted. I can, I can look at social media. I can put something on. I can watch anything I want whenever. Um, and, uh, and I live in the city, so there's always stuff going on. So I, there, I, I realized this recently that I spend a lot less time just, doing nothing and staring and thinking and being with my own thoughts. And I was thinking about this in terms of um, kids as well and how the, I know it because I'm doing it less, but they don't necessarily aren't growing up in a world where they ever really have it with that, that time to just be with their own thoughts. And I was talking to my daughter about this today. And I, I kind of try to keep her in these conversations. She's, she's just turned 11 and uh, I'm aware that she's, um, 
you know, we've, she's just got a phone. Um, she's starting to walk places on her, on her own. Um, and, um, but I'm trying to warn her against the distraction of overstimulation and how she's always been a daydreamy kid. And, uh, and I'm, and I'm, you know, I, in, in one sense, it's been difficult to focus her in terms of school, but at the same time, I don't ever want her to lose that because those daydream, those daydreamers are the ones who end up creating things and, you know, having ideas and stuff. And it's being alone with your thoughts and having that time that, uh, that gives you that. And uh, so that stripping back is an opportunity to maybe get back to that. And that's why I was long, you know, long way around saying that's why I was Googling that. Cause I was thinking, what if I enforced that, you know, if I gave, if I made myself be alone with myself without any other stimulation, because it's really hard to resist it in the modern world. Yeah. Um, I don't want to put a down on it, but you would go mad. Yeah, but you say that. But I actually quite like my own company. I, I, the end thing I ended up doing is talking to myself incessantly. And, but I find that um, I was away for a week um, in the summer, um, uh, staying in student digs. I was on, a, on an archeological dig and, um, and I didn't know anyone and, I, and it was out in the middle of nowhere. So I spent a lot of time with myself and, uh, and I did, I really enjoyed just walking and talking to myself. And, uh, and it was like a reminder of getting back to those kind of inner life conversations that I used to have a lot more often than I do nowadays. Mm. So it's, so yes, I would go mad, but I might only go outwardly mad to other people. I would look crazy, yeah. <laughs> but I'd be happy. <laughs> You know, I was wondering whether to share this story. It's a bit of a weird story. But when I was in my early 20s, I worked for a radio station and it was children in need for um, people listening outside the UK. It's like a, uh, raising money for, for charities that help children. And the, um, the mascot is Pudsey Bear, who's, as you guys will know, is a bear and he's got a patch over one eye. It's very cute. And I was volunteered to be Pudsey for the radio station that I was working with. So I had to spend the day in a Pudsey outfit going from school to school um, as this character. But I couldn't see through the eyes very well. So I had to be, because I'm quite small, so I had to be basically guided everywhere by a friend of mine. And so I had no... Um, I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't direct myself. I didn't know where to walk. I had to be directed. No one could see my face because I was inside this pudsy outfit, full body outfit. Um, all I had to do was to go to places and be hugged by kids. And it was the most calm day that oh. I probably ever had in my whole life. Um, it didn't lead me down the whole cosplay weirdness that some people get into. I've never tried it since. But, but just being... Uh, I guess be, it, it, being slightly disconnected from other people, being able to be in the world but unseen, um, mm -hmm. nothing expected of you except just to be there. Yeah. yeah. Physically there. It was this extraordinary experience. And even the, more than 20 years ago, I still think about it now as this amazing. The kids were also projecting onto you who they wanted you to be as well. Yeah. So that costume so yeah. was doing the work for you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I had, a, I mean, I won't go into it too much, but I did a little bit of mask work um, at an improv festival a while ago. And I found a similar experience where you put, where the act of putting some uh, disguise on makes you go into yourself more. And also you're fascinated by the response that you're getting because you can't see what they can see. You're not, um, so it's, it's this weird relationship where you're both disconnected and in some ways more connected to the people around you. It's a very peculiar thing. I, yeah, I get that. I love it actually. And that does explain why, well, why you're wearing the costume right now. 
because we, <laughs> we, like. we just think it was a bit weird. But, yeah. <laughs> I only do it for podcasts. I don't wear it every day. <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, you know, that brings me back to something I wanted to pick up earlier on about connection, um, because you were talking about connection in, in you know, doing a house gig. Um, and I was thinking, <clears throat> when I have to give a speech, I'd rather give a speech to 200 or 300 people than a speech to 12. But for yeah, example, yeah. yeah. Mm. Is, 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 um, makes you feel very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. See the response, you know, to everything you're saying in every face in front of you. Um, but I was also, that made me wonder about our sort of mass production and kind of mass communication world that we've become very used to versus the, the revival of more of an artisanal, more connected world that is starting to emerge so you know mass production big business it's very impersonal it's very much about uh, about scale and about efficiency and it's not about connection at all in fact connection would get in the way of that process versus something that is quite ancient and that now seems to be finding some space again which is about small and intimate and connected and telling stories in small spaces and looking people in the eye mm-hmm. and being vulnerable and i wonder if um you know you increasingly see some of these very big bands doing these very small acoustic unplugged gigs and i wonder if there is <clears throat> if you if you feel a, a desire even though there's a discomfort also a desire for more of that connectedness between the performer and the and the audience i think for me there's there's a kind of um uh there's a sort of a it feels like a drug at times um like when i because i do a comedy improv and i teach it as well one of the things that um when we're talking about connecting with other people one of the games i play is like get people to make eye contact with each other um and for longer than is normal and that is uh you get this feeling inside your body because there's something every core of your being goes this is long this is this is unusual this is out of my comfort zone and um and our natural um desire is to look away and we all we we roughly as you know humans there's a kind of an agreed upon amount of time it's okay to look at somebody without it being suddenly too intimate and um uh, and i'm fascinated by that about getting to just that point where it's just a little bit over the line of what's normal, but not too much so that it's weird, <laughs> you know? So it's like, what is that? And because what you do, you go to a deeper level of, 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 um, of connection with somebody um, because, you know, it's the cliches are obviously there for a reason, but like eyes being windows of the soul, there's so much you see about somebody if you just take a little bit more time and we are, we generally speaking in the world there are fewer fewer and fewer opportunities to spend the time we can connect with a lot more people on a bigger scale like you were just saying but um but the actual investment in the any specific relationship can be much it tends to be much more reduced you know we don't talk on the phone as much as we used to as a you know there's a kind of become a a modern sort of joking trope isn't it like talk on the phone what you know people just text or Mm. you know or write things to each other and um and i think finding those opportunities to spend a little bit more time on an individual response uh, interaction relationship with somebody is quite um what's the word well it kind of gives you butterflies because it's um it's quite profound it's profound and it's exciting and i think that's uh, so i kind of crave those 
those, you know, that's kind of sort of why I guess I'm doing it in the first place. <laughs> Maybe if I'm honest, it's mm. that it's for that relationship with, um, with people exchanging something with somebody. But I think the, the, the other part of that <clears throat> is the, our experience of performing it, uh, and looking at each other, mm -hmm. uh, because like when I see a band, usually the thing that swings it for me, that makes it magical, um, is well, obviously it's partly the thing between them and the audience, but it's also the thing between them on the stage. So when you see those super pro slick bands, you just don't look at each other and just kind of, you know, go through the music and go through the motions. I you know, it doesn't matter how good it is. Um, it doesn't feel special, but when I see them looking at each other and smiling and, uh, reacting to each other and like in a band with six people, that's one thing, you know, you, you have your moment with the drummer and you go and rock out with the drummer and then you have your moment with the keyboard player and, you know, and those feel that, that can feel a little bit choreographed, but between two people on a stage, I mean, you walk out a girl and a boy onto a stage and, um, people have already started telling a story about what your relationship is, about who you are, about what you're doing. Um, and then we start to tell the story apart from the songs by looking at each other. And um, it means it changes the way we sing. Mm -hmm. uh, it changes the way we play. Uh, the dynamics are different every time we do the song uh, because and it's not because we're doing hand signals or any of that stuff because we're looking at each other. And it's because it changes the way we listen to each other. Yes. I think that's what, that's the thing is, uh, by, by making that connection, by making the effort to make that connection, be brave enough to do it. It changes the way you listen. I think that is, um, a really important part of, of any kind of, um, uh, creative, cre any kind of creativity that involves communication. I think it's about, is as much about listening as it is, is to performing or saying or speaking or whatever expressing mm. and um it's 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 in you know it's woven into it um and that has been an, a really um enriching I keep using the word enriching sorry um uh, uh uh discovery for us in recent times of uh of how you know people have commented on it in some in some things that people said about the album recently about how our voices are kind of intertwined and what's interesting i what i hear from that is great we we're listening to each other mm. and that i find that really lovely yeah and it's you know and part of that on a practical level is not having to yell over a drum kit <laughs> yes. um, we can literally actually hear each other we can actually hear each other and you know I, I see her mouth move i hear some sounds coming out of it rather than kind of <laughs> guessing at what's going on yeah um but i think going back to the broader point that i think um what's interesting is what's happening on Facebook at the moment, in my experience with the, you know, posting for the band, uh, is that people are taking this platform, which basically depersonalizes everything and in so many ways is horrendous and has done such terrible damage, but are using it to form those communities. And it's, a lot of it goes back to the days of um, uh, the forums. So you'd be like a band website and then all the fans would meet up on the forum and chat about what had gone on. And, and we didn't realize this stuff even really went on until we did this. Um, uh, it was like a, a Marillion weekender. So bizarrely, we've had, we've done some bizarre supports also over the years, but we, we ended up going to this holiday camp in Belgium, the center park, the center park off season, which Marillion had hired for three days um, for all their fans from around the world to come and, me up 
um, and hang out with the band and <clears throat> doing like, you know, one of their, they did a whole concert based on one album. They did the greatest hits. They did B-sides. The, the bass player did his solo album in its entirety. And there were some support bands of bands they liked. And we were one of those bands. Um, but we suddenly realized that there was a whole community of people who were meeting up for this once a year thing, who knew each other pretty intimately. And this thing would move around the world. They'd be yeah. in Brazil or, you know, be somewhere in Europe and yeah. America's, you know, it, it just move around. And so they would all meet up with each other and um, look forward to that time when they were sharing this common interest yeah. in a place together. And it didn't matter where it was, but they were, they were following the thing around the world. Yeah. And they weren't like rich people. They just saved up all their money. Yeah. And then once a year got together and did this thing. In the meantime, kept to get um, talking to each other on the internet. And what we found is that if you go on Facebook and like one thing we did recently was I found a copy of my favorite piece of music, the Goretzky's Third Symphony. Um, and I found a copy of it on CD. And whenever I find it on CD, I buy it in a charity shop. Two quid. Uh, just so that I can give it to someone who doesn't know it. And when I thought, so I've been doing that with people at work and students, and I was like, well, I should do this on the, you know, on the Facebook page. So we did it. And I said, so like, all you have to do is tell us an album that you love, so that we get a bit of information, and then, you know, we'll decide at the end of the day who gets the thing. And it ended up going for like four days of people just talking about stuff and albums that they loved, and it went back and forth, and we, you know... In a slightly cynical way, I was looking at our Facebook kind of, you know, um, uh, attendance and, you know, what was going on and the statistics. And it just went, it went mental. Sorry, I just gestured. Up. Um, uh, it, um, and it was, you suddenly realised that people take whatever opportunity they can to make, actually to make the world smaller. Mm-hmm. You know, so they'll take something, a platform as big as Facebook mm-hmm. and basically turn it into, you know, a bunch of people getting together for coffee and going, hey, do you like that record? Oh, I love that record. And then, you know, oh, you should try this. If you like that, you'll like this. And it, overcoming the, the shittiness of Facebook uh, with just by sheer force of will and numbers um, to, to, to make it something communal. And, and now it's why, I guess you know, print publications and the rest are struggling because, you know, nobody reads reviews about what music, I say nobody, um, but it's less about that and more about your community of people that you trust going, yeah, that's a really cool record, you should try that. And there's usually one or two people who seem to know more than everyone else, the Mavens, I guess you call them now, um, who sort of direct. <clears throat> um, uh, but it's really, really wonderful to see. Um, but it's very, very hard to find a place to do it. Um, Facebook's not ideal, Twitter's awful for it. You know, um, uh, so I don't, I'm kind of pondering this. I'm kind of, you know, is the time right for forums to come back? You know, is the kind of Reddit model of, you know, discussing stuff at length with people in a sort of unglamorous, non-distracting, you know, just typing words on a screen. Is that, is that the way forward? Will that, but, or do people need more than that to inspire them to to get them excited about it i don't know the answer but you know i i, I don't know what the what the forum is what, what the you know how or where but what i what i'm sure of <clears throat> is people's humanity will out in a sense you know that mm. you, you can you can enforce a sort of um i mean i always think of it as quite an industrial age thing and but but you can enforce quite a rigorous sort of control on people to 
um, to dedicate their life to certain things, to, to the accumulation of wealth or status or whatever, um, and to compete with each other for, you know, for who's, who's got the biggest and the best. Or you, you can do all that, but in the end, people's humanity forces itself out. And you find people just desperately in need to connect on a human level and they will find ways to do that. And they, they'll use something like, like Facebook, which is probably evil, but, but gives an opportunity that, you know, can we, can we secretly be using it for good? You know? yeah. but so often it's attached to, so music is such a, such a great way of doing it because, you know, uh, people are, um, kind of pre, what's the word? Predetermined, no, predestined, no, uh, pre-something. Um, so they're kind of, they're, they're, they're more willing to put predisposed. themselves- Predisposed, thank you. They're more predisposed <laughs> to open themselves emotionally to discuss something as, you know, obviously emotional as, as music. Um, so it's, it's a really great place to kind of get people together like that. And, you know, and sometimes, you know, people overshare and sometimes, you know, it can be awkward in that way. But, but what's wonderful is how consistent it is. You know, when we do this, when we talk to people on the internet, and I think it's the reason that people are so loyal. You know, we, we don't have um, huge, but a huge amount of followers. But of the followers we've got, they are all to the point of having us in tears sometimes hugely hugely loyal yeah you know so say there's four thousand people on facebook who like us there's maybe three or four hundred people of that group who are who funded our record mm -hmm. who made it possible for us to put strings on our record who um have subsequently offered to help us out financially just because you know they want us to carry on doing what we're doing um and it's you know the the, the this what we've discovered is that that's very, that's quite a difficult thing to deal with. The, the culture of being able to ha uh, be gifted something, to be able to accept um, a gift from someone. Um, we've, it, it feels weird. It feels weird, you know, not that you think the worst of the person, but you know, as a human, it's just like, I don't know, is that, is that okay? Can we, you, you want to give us some money so we can do a thing? Can we accept that money? Do you, are you sure? Is there nothing you want for that? Mm. You know, it's, it's weird. Yeah, um, we were talking about how, you know, accepting the gift. It's like um, we, we haven't had this sort of soul-searching conversation about, about accepting generosity. And um, it's, it's a weird one. It's difficult. But, it, you know, it's, it's sort of akin to when someone gives you a compliment. Um, the best thing you can do is say thank you because you then make them not feel stupid for giving you the compliment in the first place. It's an exposing thing to be generous, an exposing thing to be complimentary. And, uh, and so, you know, if, if when people are, are generous to us, you know, we have to kind of um, be brave enough to, to just take that and say thank you, rather than try and come up with reasons, which is our natural bent, to, um, you know, reasons why it's why we, sh we should feel guilty or bad for people being so kind, <laughs> you know? And so I think that's a, that's a, that's an interesting battle. But it's, it's strange it, uh, how quickly your brain flicks from the purity. I know it's a big word, but from the purity of uh, a performance and a shared conversation and storytelling and the back and forth and the kind of the, 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 the thing of not performing on a stage, just on a floor at a level with everyone else. And, you know, how that can be so uh, moving 
Uh, and then at the end of that, you as a performer become self-conscious about people wanting to give something back. And that's what it is. It's people feeling like they've had something of value given to them and wanting to then, and not really knowing how to express back, but wanting to give something. And like, if that's some money or buying the record or whatever it is, uh, it's really, really hard to see the exchange as an artist um, when you should. You totally should. But I guess a lot of it comes from our, everyone's natural um, kind of thing of you, you tend to not value the things that come fairly naturally to you this, as much as you value things that are difficult for you. So if, you're, if, if what's normal for us is to perform, it's hard for us to necessarily see that that is, that someone else will see that differently. Someone else will see that as something they wish they were able to express in that way or whatever. And so uh, it's that thing of how you view normal <laughs> in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And also what we're used to, I mean, I, I, so there's a few things going through our mind based on what you said. The first is that this is why people don't make themselves vulnerable. Because if you make yourself vulnerable mm -hmm. to connect, it's, it's, then you can't switch it off. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can, but it's odd to do it. Yes. So if, if you're gonna really connect, people are gonna feel connected and then they're gonna to behave towards you in ways that people don't behave when they feel disconnected. Mm -hmm. It's gonna be unusual because we're just, we're just not, it's not common in our world. Mm -hmm. it's, most relationships are more transactional than that. Mm -hmm. But I also wonder if we're more used to feeling comfortable when I'd rather someone owed me than I owed them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't like to feel like I owe you now. I'd rather they owe me. And so when, 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 you, uh, when they give something back to you that feels like more than you gave them, whether or not it was, or when they give you back, you now feel indebted and that's really uncomfortable. You know, but you're not indebted. You gave them something and they gave you something back that felt to them of equal value. It's a fair yeah. deal. We're just not used to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we're, we're, you know, we're taught at school. Um, you know that stuff and and you know going back to what you were saying earlier as well uh you know being the way the, the way the world is changing uh the the way that the world works is necessarily going to have to be more based on a creative lifestyle just people working from home people dealing with the world uh it's, it's going to be less about office jobs and factory jobs which is what school sets you up for um and it's going to be more about you know this you know people you know guy thinking brainstorming oh we're not allowed to say that anymore i know but yeah um <laughs> uh yeah so it's kind of it's it's just it, it fits in with i think because it's we're at a transitional stage as a species um and i think you know maybe maybe it's the next 10 years that we'll be telling maybe it's the next 100 years that we'll be telling but um uh, i I feel quite optimistic because I think, like you say, in the end, it's the humanity that's going to have to shine through. Either that, or we accept the money and we end up in a sex dungeon. Yeah, that is also a, on the list of possibilities. Yeah. But I was just I, crossroads, isn't it? You have to choose. <laughs> but I like, I like what you were just saying about that. Uh, about the you'd rather somebody uh, owe you than you owe them. And but what kind of what, I, I was just having the image in my head of of sort of the, the kindness build 
of you know people do you know because once if 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 you do something and somebody pays you back in equal amount that in, that exchange is done and that's a kind of a way that that's how we go about the world a lot of the time is to kind of go have an equal um, I do something for you, it's returned, and then we're done, and we can move on. And it keeps us at a sort of distance, whereas the, whereas the sort of uh, the hand over hand of, uh, of kind of like being, people being slightly, oh, they've given me more than I've given them, that keeps a relationship kind of going in a way. Mm. That's what keeps societies going, is how money works as well. It's, you know, if you pay somebody back the exact amount, then that transaction's done. Um, whereas if you're, if you're owing if someone's owing you a little bit more and then when you pay them back that you giving them a little bit more that's keeping a relationship going and i think the same a similar thing works with kindness and um and maybe i mean i'm sure it would have to level out at some point but maybe that's kind of more about how we build communities as well and they build um like whether it be virtual communities or whatever is that kind of um that kind of keeping that going rather than making an exchange an equal ex exchange it's yeah, about yeah, yeah. You know, adding a little bit more each time, adding a little bit more, and you know. But I think that's really true because you know the first thing that happens is you sit, so people hear the song, and then the next thing that happens is people buy the album, mm -hmm. and once they bought the album, if they like the album and they're connected to the album, and it's made them feel a bit different, as I was saying earlier. The next, the next question we get is, you know, on Twitter or Facebook, is when are you playing live, mm -hmm. um, because they want that exchange back again. Yeah, you know, that's, that's the relationship to continue. Yeah. Um, and then knowing that they can have a relationship with the band online um, becomes important um, and back and forth becomes important. And, you know, the difficulty then, you know, as someone who's in a band is most people's assumption is that we just do this, that we are just Sweet Billy Pilgrim <laughs> and we just do Sweet Billy Pilgrim. So if, you know, if the replies aren't there on a daily basis, uh, the... I'm guessing it can feel like a betrayal when that stops mm. uh, and trying to explain it just sounds kind of wet. Yeah. yeah. It's, you know, oh, I've been really busy at work. It's <laughs> like, yeah. And, uh, but, but you just, you know, you're a musician, that's your job. And it's like, well, no, there's a bit more to it than that. So the, the commitment to engage is, well, engaging in itself is a massive commitment because people then have, you, you know, people have expectations. It's like any relationship, you know, if you set out, you know, saying to a new best friend, I'm here for you all the time. And then if there's something comes up that you're not, you know, you're not able to be with them all the time, then it's, uh, then that, you know, the other person is in danger of feeling you know, like they got screwed. And yeah. I think that's, yeah, yeah. it's, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one, one to kind of, you know, do you, um, do you, do you manage expectations and go, well, this is the kind of amount of engagement we can offer, or do you just wing it? Yeah, <laughs> or just stay up really late. Yes. Well, I wonder if um, what actually happens is a bit like really good friends that don't see each other for a long time, and then they see each other again, and it's mm. like, they just saw each other yesterday. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that, the the this kind of kindness inflation that you're talking about generates a trust between you that means that if you did fall off the internet for 48 hours or a week um they'd still love you when you came yeah. back yeah, but it's whether the facebook algorithm would still love you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah there you might have a problem yeah 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 because <laughs> uh, you know if we release the album and someone will go where when are you coming to play in scotland and we're like, well, we, we don't have an agent uh, and we couldn't fill a venue, you know, because Sweet Willie Pilgrim fans are not concentrated in any particular area. You know, it's like, you know, one person in Thailand, you know, <laughs> one person in Turkey, 
another person in Harlow. Um, uh, it's, uh, you know, we can, and, and trying, to, trying to explain it without sounding, you know, A, patronising or B, a bit pissed off that we're kind of being, you know, that someone feels betrayed by this. Um, it's really difficult to do. It's really, you know, we'd love to come and play in Scotland. Um, and I think what we're going to have to do in the future is going to be, can you get 40 people in a room who will all chuck 20 quid in a hat um, and can we afford the train fare? Um, uh, is that a thing we could do? And maybe just be positive and call them on it. Yeah. I think, uh, isn't it uh, Amanda Palmer uh, used to do stuff like that where she mm-hmm. would just, um, you know, she had her fans all over and she would basically couch surf. So she would stay at their yeah. houses and yeah. then they would pull all their buddies together and she'd do a gig. And that was basically how... Yeah. And I think that's more and more, you know, it's like also reminds me of the old sort of troubadours of the sort of troubadours, but you know, the people like um, people from you know, like the 20s and 30s going around town to town, cutting records with a radio station in that local area. And that's how, and then if they play there and it's sort of like, it feels more like that old model uh, is the way that in the last, certainly in the last sort of decade, it's you're moving towards of like going, finding your audience, trying to kind of, trying to gather people in a place, right, let's do it there, rather than going through the, checking off the lists of the toilet venues that, you know, that yeah. make you feel like you are, uh, you're privileged to be able to play in them. Uh, so, is, so but, but, you know, on just, just checking. So this, as close as we are to 50 years old, the whole sofa surfing thing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't back. My my neck is. I had a sleeping injury. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I woke up with a pain, neck pain. It was just you know from yeah. my pillow. Yeah. No, I think there's got to be a way to do it in in, in midlife. That's not yeah. quite so painful. We've already but, but I, <laughs> It's interesting because I'm all about rethinking work and rethinking how we work and the and the place that work has in our lives. But but you know everything. Music is going through that same. Um, through that same kind of rethinking process. Education is going through that same rethinking process. Um, you know, every aspect of our life maybe needs to be reconfigured for this new, for this new world because you have a global audience, but you don't have these little, it's not like you're big in Japan. So you, you might have a couple of guys in Japan that, that love you. you. You can't go over and be number one in Japan on the basis of that. But, but uh, globally, there are all these people. So is there, this is just one of the challenges of our kind of global villagey world where people love us all, you know, from all different parts of the world. And it's the same whether you run a business or whether you, whether you have a band, I think. Mm-hmm. A new model is required. Mm. Yeah, but not so. So, yeah. so what's, what's next for you guys? Um, we have to wrap it up. I don't want to stop. <laughs> <laughs> Can we just hang out for the rest of the Great. day? <laughs> but um, uh, what's next for you? I mean, apart from the kind of crazy ideas that we've just been coming up with, what, what's on the agenda for you guys? Next? Well, we're both about to um, uh, have a lot less time. So we're, so we've got some uh, house gigs um, for this month. We're doing weekends. And, um, and then Tim's going back to teaching. I'm going back to uni. And, um, and so we'll have a lot less time. But what we are trying to put together is going to Nashville. Um, and uh, a little trip there and, and doing, you know, playing some gigs there. We thought, I don't know, maybe what we're doing now would have an audience there. So that's one of the things we're looking into. Um, uh, and uh, yeah. What yeah, else? I mean, you know, to, to do some more shows. Somehow, yeah. you know, it might be more house concerts yeah. um, uh, if we can find uh, a kind of sympathetic agent. 
um, maybe find some shows. Um, well, I mean, we really need to expand our audience. So I think playing with some other people mm-hmm. might be key, you know, if we can find, um, it, cause we've always been a bit non-genre specific, shall we say, which is, <laughs> you know, been both a blessing and a curse. No one knows what we are or who we are. You know, we've toured with jazz bands and world music people and, you know, pop bands. We toured with Jamie Cullum again. You know, how does that work? Um, uh, And so no one really knows what we are. But I think for the first time, we do, Mm. maybe. And this new kind of acoustic incarnation is, is quite practical. So I think it would be great if we could do some shows with someone else and perhaps expand our little world a little bit um so yeah it's all plans but also uh, plans and no plans though because one of the things that got us to where we are now is the unexpected so um i you know i think that that's another thing they're just being open to wherever it takes you next really and that's um both um you know convenient because who knows what's going to happen but also i find it kind of exciting because you know if ever i get asked what do you where do you see yourself in five years time i can never answer that question and i kind of don't want to be able to answer that question because i don't want to know i don't want there to be a such a you know a a rigid path that i'm gonna i can predict where i'm going to be in five years time um but so i'm i like the idea that you know um often the best things come about when the unexpected happens so just assuming that that will continue to happen (laughs) and and just go with it Mm. surf the wave (laughs) thank you so much both of you it's been fantastic talking to you we've covered so many different things and i think so much of what we've talked about um is is food for thought no matter what your life looks like whether whether you're whether you're primarily in a creative field or whether you work in a corporate world whatever it might be there's just so much here that can just spark you to think a little bit differently about how you construct it all and and um how you make your life work for you oh just 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 before we finish if anybody has any ideas about how all that stuff can cross over you know how could an acoustic duo be useful in the corporate world you know with (laughs) we'd be totally up for trying stuff out yeah come and find us we're easy to find um uh, sweet billy pilgrim and um google us and we're we're there um but and yeah and as we've said in the uh, in this interview we um we're pretty approachable and pretty you know we have like to have a chat with people um but yeah um new things always good yes but thank you so much for having us Blair. it's been awesome thank you thank you I am asking for a friend, for a friend. I am asking, I am
looking for a friend I am asking beautiful song. I love conversations like that. Wide-ranging, philosophical, thought-provoking, laid-back. It's wonderful as well to have the time to do it. It really feeds the soul. Please go to their website, sweetbillypilgrim.com, where you can buy their latest album, Wapentack. Check them out on Facebook too, and of course on YouTube. And as Tim said, they want to hear from you. So if you want to know more about the band, if you want to connect with them, or you've got any ideas about how they can 
use their music in the corporate world or anything else, get in touch with them. You can also, of course, stay in touch with us. It's all the usual Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and with information about how to do that. Here's the charming and delightful Ivy Palmer. You can get all the episodes of this show plus read the blog and find out more about our travel adventure at www.brilliantgamble.com. Sign up to the newsletter and get an advance notice of classes and programs Mummy is running. Plus, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Brilliant Gamble. Finally, please leave a review and star rating for this podcast on iTunes as it helps people find us and take a brilliant gamble of their own. Bye!